Hey folks, I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. This winter, we're walking the aisles of the Wait 5 Minutes Antique Mall, searching for the antiques that unlock secret bits of Florida history and send us down rabbit holes through our not-so-distant past. Today, we've got a special little piece of history in our hands, a stamp that sent me on an unusual path through Florida history. I found it in Orlando at an antique store that has a whole rack of these antique stamps. Most are very simple, the typical things you'd see in a law office or really any paper-based business from decades past. I normally don't pay them any mind, that's not the sort of thing I like collecting, but I figured I'd give them a glance today. That's when I discovered something surprising, a name that was very familiar to me. You see, I used to work in the Amway Center here in Orlando, where the Orlando Magic and the Orlando Solar Bears play games. Orlando Solar Bears, they're a minor league hockey team, and I worked for them. I ran music during their games when I started this show, the very early years back in 2018 and 2019. I spent long afternoons and evenings in the chilly arena listening to podcasts and brainstorming ideas for this show. It was on those walks that I discovered a wall of old orange crate designs, the same designs that prompted me to make my first episodes about Florida Citrus. Sitting in the booth, I'd read the news and search for something to write about, and I attribute a lot of my early success in this show to the time that I had to work on the show while waiting to play some music for my hometown hockey team. Because I was curious, I had questions, and when you're in the heart of your city every day, you start wondering about everything. You start looking out those big windows on the side of the arena and wondering, what is that? What's going on over there? Why is that called that? It's just natural, especially when you're in the early days of researching Florida history. One thing that always stood out to me when I wandered the arena was a restaurant called Jernigan's. I looked up the name. It turns out Orlando at one time was called Jernigan, an unusual name, until you learn the reason. The first white settlers in this town bore that name. 200 years ago, in the years of the Seminole Wars, white men came to this town and they named it for themselves. Well, as I thumbed through the stamps at the antique mall, that name stuck out to me again, a stamp with that same surname. It read Studios of Paul Frank Jernigan. An obvious purchase for me, that name. It's connected to our history, right? If that was on this stamp, I had to have it, no matter what it was. And it inspired me to make episodes about how interesting it was to discover bits of history in our antique malls. That's why I'm doing this, was because of this stamp. Based on the age of the stamp, it had to be maybe mid-20th century, and if my presumption was correct, it may be a stamp that once belonged to a relative, a descendant of that original Jernigan family. Its presence in the heart of Orange County at an antique mall in Winter Park supported my theory. The Jernigan family that arrived to Orlando 200 years ago had an ancestor still around at some point in the last several decades, and I had just found their stamp. So to unpack that essential Orlando history, I went where I always go for Central Florida history. I went to the Orange County Regional History Center to catch up with my friend Rachel Williams and to go in search of the history of the Jernigan family. Here is Rachel. <laughs> so can you tell me about the original Jernigans? Tell me tell me who they are and why they why we even remember them at all. Yeah, so I mean Aaron Jernigan is the guy that the first iteration of Orlando is named after right. with Jernigan. But he and his brother Isaac came to Florida from Georgia mm. um, to settle. This is shortly after the second Seminole War mm. and they're trying to entice them to come back. So they have this land act that says if you um, settle within, I think, two miles of a military fort, 
um, build a home and cultivate and defend the land for five years, you get 160 acres or something sure, like that. Sure, some specific a lot. Right. So Aaron and his brother Isaac said, all right, we'll go do that. And so they meandered on down to what is, well, it's kind of like the Conway area a little bit. Okay, um, so a little bit southeast Yeah, because that's around where Fort Gatlin is. Okay. Right? And, but then... Um, where they ended up settling was on the north side of Lake Holden. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Started. Oh, and they brought. Oh, they brought cattle. Seven hundred cattle. Okay. Two slaves. Okay. And an elderly man. And eventually, Aaron went back to Georgia to bring his family. His name is Aaron Jernigan. Last name spelled J-E-R-N-I-G-A-N. Jernigan. He came from Camden County, Georgia, the county just beyond our borders in Florida's northeast corner. We have visited Camden County for this show. We have visited the town of St. Mary's along the coast. Aaron Jernigan was born in September of 1813. He possessed some wealth later in life because when he came to Florida, he had 700 cattle and he brought along two enslaved persons. When he first came to Florida, he came to Tallahassee, but then eventually moved all the way down to what is present-day Orlando and settled himself along the banks of Lake Holden. An Orlando Sentinel article from 1998 presents where the homestead claim that Jernigan likely settled was. It's just south of a giant curve in present-day I-4, a few miles east of the Mall of Millennia, not very far south of downtown Orlando. Where that settlement was today, there is a 7-Eleven. But it is likely right there that Aaron Jernigan came down with his cattle and settled the first white settlement in this region. How did he acquire such land? Well, America had been embroiled in the Second Seminole War from 1835 to 1842. In the early 1800s, the Seminoles had been forced into a spot of land in the middle of the state, and when that land became unsuitable for their continued survival, they sought to increase the land that they had been allotted. The American government did not allow that, and violence broke out between the native people of this land and the government that had claimed it as territory. The violence lasted for years, one of the most crucial events in our state's history. But by the time it was done, a large number of Seminoles had fled to southern parts of Florida, areas where there was little to no white settlement at all. It became an informal reservation, and the American government let it lie, for now. But they immediately incentivized a way to bring in new white settlers to the state, having Congress pass an act with an ominous name, the Armed Occupation Act. The act would provide 160 acres to any settler that could come down to Florida and meet certain requirements for land development. This is from the Florida Historical Society. Quote, each settler who would settle and cultivate five acres or more of land in eastern and southern Florida for a period of five years would receive 160 acres of land and one year's ration from the federal government, end quote. But more than land and development, there was another stipulation in order to meet the act's requirements. Quote, settlers were expected also to provide militia service, if needed, to control the activities of the warring Seminole Indians, end quote. So even though the Second Seminole War was over, the government was bringing in white settlers to continue to fill up the land, but also they were using those white settlers to create a militia in case any other conflict broke out with the native peoples of Florida. That would soon come to fruition. They were now living on even more Seminole land and building up a militia army to fight the Seminoles back if the time came, when the time came. They also needed to be near a military outpost, 
Fort Gatlin, which was built for the war, was a few miles away from the land Jernigan would settle. There is a historical marker where Fort Gatlin once stood here in Orlando. That's perhaps a story for another day. I would like to see that marker with my own two eyes. But Aaron Jernigan was a recipient of land from the Armed Occupation Act, as was his brother, Isaac. They'd put their land together, and in 1843, a year after the signing of the act, they'd come down to settle land that would soon be called Jernigan. Within a few years, Aaron had created a name for himself as a settler of this land, and he would eventually become the first representative of the county for the state legislature. Additionally, that militia that the Armed Occupation Act required, Aaron became a captain for that militia and would soon go to lead, quote, several campaigns against renegade Seminoles, end quote. Indeed, through the 1840s, Jernigan did use his militia to find and fight Seminoles in the area. 1849-1850, there started to be some natives that went outside of their reservation area because, of course, right. they did. <laughs> right, they're in the allotted space. There's only so much you can do. Yeah, yeah. they're gonna. They're not going to stay in their little reservation yeah. by some foreign government, you right. know? Um, so they start going out, they're stealing, stealing people's pigs and cattle and whatever. And then things start to get hostile. I think three people were killed near Kissimmee or something like that. Three settlers. Um, so Aaron Jernigan decided to create like a stockade, a little fort for other settlers to kind of hide out in. They stayed there for about a year while things were kind of amping up between settlers and natives. Um, and from that stockade and also his home, that kind of started to create this like central hub mm. of settlers coming and like having like a general store there and getting news about what's going on and stuff like that. So that kind of started a central area for the settlement of Jernigan, mm. which it became Jernigan when they got a post office and right. Jernigan named, or it was named, I guess, the Jernigan Post Office, and okay. that's how it became to be known as Jernigan. It's true. Three white settlers in Kissimmee were killed, and Jernigan would build that stockade. That stockade is actually what really made it so that Jernigan became an actual spot on the map. By defining the lines of Jernigan as a settlement, that is what made it more officially a town. Jernigan's daughter, Martha Tyler, would report 80 people lived within that stockade for a year during this warring time in the 1850s. Once the post office went up that was called Jernigan's Post Office, as is traditionally the case, Jernigan became a real town, not just a spot where one family settled. Jernigan was a place on the map, a place where people lived, and that is the predecessor to Orlando. The stockade and the town in his name wasn't all of Jernigan's influence. His role in the militia also led him into violence against the Seminoles. In the early 1850s, Jernigan and his militia would go searching for Seminoles that had, and this is their language, not mine, the Seminoles that had gone too far from the places that they had been allowed to be. They had places the Seminoles were, quote-unquote, supposed to be, and they had left those places. Jernigan and his militia found and sometimes killed, sometimes kidnapped the Seminoles that had moved from their allotted reservation. Within a few years, the Third Seminole War would break out and they would be doing this exact thing, finding and rooting out Seminoles in this land. Here's a quote from an Orlando Sentinel article from 1994, quote, In 1855, Secretary of War Jefferson Davis, who would later be President of the Confederacy, ordered the Army to adopt a new policy of harassing the Indians by cutting off their trade routes and mounting surveying excursions into their land, end quote. The Third Seminole War began that same year, 1855. 
Jernigan was a part of the years that led up to this third and final Seminole War. Rachel tells me one of Jernigan's more violent tales, and I have to warn you now, it is a dark story. I would skip about a minute and a half if you don't want to hear this story. He was um, a captain of a volunteer like militia. Sure. He was known to be incredibly violent towards natives. Um, there's one incident where he captured a Seminole chief. I think it's Eniha. Eniha, spelled E-N-I-H-A-W. I, I believe it's pronounced Eniha. Him, his wife, their baby, and the chief's mother. The um, chief and the wife ended up escaping mm. during the um, transport back to wherever they were going to keep them. Yeah. And so that just left the, the like, his mother and their baby. And at some point, they, like, kept the mother, at least, in a smokehouse on his property. Oh, boy. And she ended up, she ended up hanging herself, is what the record says. Right. sure. But, like, was it made to look like a hanging, ba ba ba? Yeah. Um, I mean, she was hung by, like, a leather strap on from a table. Yeah. So, like, she was under a table and hung herself from it or something. Oh, man. What happened to the baby was never recorded. Oh, my gosh. Don't know. So we don't know. Don't know. Oh, man. Yeah. Um, so that's just, like, one of the incidents, but everything else just says that he was incredibly, like, hostile and violent towards, um, towards natives. In one account from after the war, from 1891, the year the Jernigan died, a man named W.B. Watson is recorded as saying the following about Aaron Jernigan. I got this quote from that 1998 Orlando Sentinel article. Jernigan is described as such, quote, a man famous as the most extensive cattle owner in the state who had fought Indians ever since he could shoot a gun, which was pretty early in those days. He was the leading man in the county and his word was law. A dozen or more settlers in the county lived on his generosity and in return were ever ready to do his bidding were it for good or evil." End quote. Jernigan's reign, however, was not forever. By the end of the 1850s, he fled Florida. Rachel tells the tale as to why. And then in 1859, he was um, not charged because he evaded trial. Um, he was suspected of murder. No kidding. He, his three sons, and three other men killed someone, William Wright, I think. Yeah, William Wright in front of the Jernigan post office. What? In a brawl. What? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, don't know what it, what exactly it was about. Some people, I saw some things say it was either, it could have been a, they stabbed him, they shot him, or it was just a, a brawl and yeah. he died. Um, Regardless, they uh, got the six men. There was not a jail in the area at the time. And so they were sending them to Ocala in Marion County because that was the closest jail. Mm. And they ended up escaping on the way, got caught, spent eight or 13 days in jail, and then escaped. Jernigan didn't exactly have a sterling reputation up to that point. His violent behavior got him in legal trouble extensively throughout his career with assault and battery charges and so much more. Jernigan was kind of known as a violent figure in this area. 
His violent treatment of the Seminoles was even investigated by the government, though he was exonerated. In 1859, the trouble caught up with him. Jernigan and six other men, three of which were his own sons, killed a man named William H. Wright outside the post office. He may have been stabbed, he may have been shot, we don't really know, the details are blurry, but the men who killed him were indicted by a grand jury. Six of the men, including Jernigan, never actually faced trial. There's one man who did, I'll tell you about him in a moment, but they escaped from that jail in Ocala. Jernigan actually was recaptured and was taken to the same jail, the Marion County Jail, but he broke out again. They really needed to do something about that jail. It's basically made of Swiss cheese. I'll tell you more about that in a second. According to this report, Jernigan stole the gun and key from the jailer and escaped on horseback. The only man left behind was William M. Tyler, Jernigan's son-in-law, who was found guilty of manslaughter, serving 30 days in jail. That's it. He was also fined for $200, but only 30 days in jail. But guess what? He didn't actually serve those 30 days in jail because he escaped from the same jail. Six of the seven guys never faced trial because they escaped. Jernigan was recaptured, he escaped again, and then the one guy who actually was convicted and was given 30 days in jail, he escaped again. Marion County Jail, what's going on? In 1859, the Marion County Jail was paper. It's crazy how many times people escaped from this jail. I mean, it's crazy. I would love to know what exactly was going on that made it such a terrible jail at that time. Nobody actually stayed in that jail. Anyway, Aaron Jernigan fled. He waited for his son, Aaron Jr., and then they went with their family to Tampa, quote, where they took a steamer to New Orleans, end quote. From they escaped, the and then he spent 25 years in Texas. So he just left. He left Florida. He just that. left. But then he came back at some after those 25 years okay. and died in Florida in 1891. Why he came back, I'm not certain, but by the time he returned, the city of Orlando was fully flourishing under the new name of Orlando. Jernigan was around in 1857 when the city was renamed Orlando, leaving his name in the past, but by 1891, Orange County's population was over 12,000, far from the 80 people that hid in his stockade only 40 years earlier. Jernigan would actually die in Orlando, and he is buried in Lake Hill Cemetery, less than 10 miles from his original settlement on the banks of Lake Holden. Why he came back and how he died, I'm not entirely sure. There's an erroneous report that says that he himself was killed, but there's no historical record that seems to back that theory up. But Aaron Jernigan died in Orlando, a town no longer named for him and his family. And 130 years after his death, I discovered a stamp in an antique store bearing his surname, perhaps once belonging to a descendant of the violent man who settled the town that I call home. Except there is one problem. There's something I neglected to tell you. The name on the stamp, it's spelled wrong. Aaron Jernigan, the first white settler in Orlando, his name is spelled J-E-R-N-I-G-A-N. I sent along my stamp to Rachel, and she noticed the discrepancy that I did not. The name on the stamp, Paul Frank Jernigan, his last name is spelled J-E-R-N-E-G-A-N. The difference is that Aaron Jernigan's name has an I, and Paul Frank Jernigan's has an E. I don't know how I did not notice. In an email late last month, Rachel pointed out the difference in the names, telling me the name on my stamp was not related to the Florida Jernigans. She said, quote, I hope this doesn't ruin your plans for your Jernigan story. 
end quote. I responded, quote, Rachel, that's even better, end quote. <laughs> it's a funny thing that I didn't notice, especially when you consider my own strange connection to misspelling of last names. My last name, as you know, is Delisandro, one L, two S's. When I was a kid, I learned how to spell my name in a similar rhythm to the Mickey Mouse theme. It is the same amount of letters, after all. I'll sing it for you, D-A-L-E-S-S-A-N-D-R-O. It's the same amount of letters. It's easy to remember. One L, two S's. I thought my name was very rare growing up. I didn't know anybody who had the same last name as me when I was a kid. But it's more common than I realized as I got older. The first time that I ever heard my name used elsewhere was in the movie St. Elmo's Fire from 1985, where there's a tiny character who is named Ron Delisandro, but his name is spelled Della, D-E-L-L-A, Sandro. Not the same. There's also a famous cheesesteak restaurant in Philadelphia. It is called Delisandro's, which is spelled exactly the same, except they don't have an apostrophe after the D like my family does. The most famous Delisandro name is actually from Nancy Pelosi, the first woman to serve as Speaker of the House in the United States Congress. Her maiden name is Delisandro, though it's spelled with one S instead of two, like me. Nancy Delisandro Pelosi is actually her name. You'd think, as a guy whose last name could be spelled in a dozen different ways, I would notice that the Jernigan on my stamp was different from the Jernigan who founded Orlando, but I did not. Rachel pointed it out to me, and bless her heart, she did research on Paul Frank Jernigan. <laughs> and she was able to help me realize the difference in these two names. And I'm now glad to tell you a little bit more about Paul Frank Jernigan. Here is a brief introduction to the man on the stamp, the Jernigan with an E. Paul Frank Jernigan with mm -hmm. the Jernigan with it is it is the letter difference that there's an E there's an E instead of an I okay tell me about him like from what you found in your in your googling about him like so, what did you find all I found was mostly I didn't dig that deep because once I saw that he is not part of this Jernigan family mm -hmm. I was like oh this isn't the guy but he his family even including his parents are from Mishawaka Indiana and he was an architect. Okay. And that's where the studio comes from in that stamp. But as far as you can tell, nothing ever here in Florida, nope. Orlando? Nothing. No, not that I can find with him. I'm, he's buried in Mishawaka. His parents are buried in Mishawaka. I don't know if his, like, kids eventually came to Florida somehow, but completely, like, separately of any kind of Florida Jernigans. But is that him, that document, that grave there? Yes. So he died in 93. So, I mean, it wasn't yeah, that so long he's, ago. So he's, yeah, 1908. Uh, to 1993, but he's buried in Indiana, where he grew up and lived. No connection to Florida at all. He was an architect in South Bend, Indiana. If I had done a little more examination of this stamp, I may have noticed a key clue to Paul Jernigan's story. I've actually got the stamp in front of me here. I'll do a little tapping. This is it. That's my... That's my stamp. <laughs> but right here on the knob, I'm holding it in my hand, it says Chaz Armstrong and Son, which appears to be the company that, that made, so I would assume that's Charles Armstrong and Son. That is the company that I believe made the stamp. That, that makes sense to me. But in the middle, around where it says Charles Armstrong and Son, it says South Bend, Indiana. S-O Bend, Indiana. How I did not lock into that, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I just... That doesn't seem like obvious clue to me, but in retrospect, it's pretty funny that the clue to where this came from was on the stamp the whole time, but I just didn't notice it. 
but that is actually where Paul Frank Jernigan lived, South Bend, Indiana. The town of Mishawaka, where he is buried, is on the eastern side of South Bend. South Bend, Indiana itself is located on the northern border of Indiana, right below the state of Michigan. It's right on the edge. It's home to the famous Catholic college, Notre Dame, home of the Fighting Irish. This region of America was first explored by Europeans by the Frenchman René Robert Cavillier Sur de La Salle, quite a name. We spoke about La Salle on this show many years ago as he was the man who tried to find the mouth of the Mississippi River and was eventually murdered by his crew on that quest. His connection to Florida is minimal, but he did explore regions west of Florida, including naming Louisiana after the king of France at that time, and those boundaries that he created would eventually lead to the borders of our state many years later, or rather the changing borders of our state through the 18th century. Nevertheless, LaSalle came to the region that would eventually become South Bend, Indiana, a hundred or so odd years before white settlers actually founded the town. This region of America was prolific in the early 1800s for its fur trade. South Bend's original settlers were fur traders with various companies setting up posts in the area in order to trade and, and have people passing by and collecting fur. Those companies would compete and the town would grow around them. The town would be established as South Bend in 1835, the same year the Second Seminole War broke out down in Florida. In 1852, the Studebaker Wagon Shop would open in South Bend as the prolific wagon and eventual automobile designers would build vehicles for Americans all over. That plant would close in 1963, however. In 1842, the same year the Second Seminole War ended, the University of Notre Dame was founded north of South Bend, becoming one of the most crucial universities in our country over the ensuing nearly two centuries. Paul Frank Jernigan was born right in the middle of that history in 1908. I actually found a few pictures of him, including a baby picture of him swaddled in white clothes. I found the name of his parents, Ralph Jernigan and Estella May Jernigan. Paul would become an architect. He would serve as the president of the Northern Indiana chapter of the American Institute of Architects. He was an interim professor of architecture at Notre Dame in the 40s. His field of architecture was, quote, civic planning and urban improvement, end quote. He also wanted to form a, quote, state-supported school of architecture and planning, end quote. Rachel even found an architectural sketch of his that I'll post on the Instagram. It's beautiful, simple, black and white. He married a woman named Imogene. I see no record of them having children, but apparently they lived in Mishawaka, east of South Bend, their entire lives. Imogen died in 1992, and Paul died in 1993. They're buried in the Jernigan family plot outside South Bend, Indiana. He dedicated his entire life to architecture. No part of the internet provided anything that Paul Frank Jernigan did besides architecture. That was his life. He was an architect. He doesn't seem to be a significant figure in South Bend's history. I searched for him all over and only found minimal references to him besides his place in the American Institute of Architects. I'm sad to imagine that Paul is forgotten. He didn't die that long ago, only 30 years ago. But it's nice to know that this stamp is here as a physical reminder of his place in the world. Somehow, this stamp from his architectural studio wound up over a thousand miles south in an antique store in Winter Park, Florida. How? How did it get here? He had no children. He had no connection to Florida. How did it get here? My theory is this. Someone made the same mistake that I did. 
the name is the same. And if you don't know that the spelling doesn't match, you'd likely make the same mistake that I did. You'd buy this stamp thinking it was related to Aaron Jernigan. You'd purchase this thing maybe in a thrift store in Indiana or perhaps an estate sale. Who knows where it came from? But maybe it was a Floridian, an Orlando resident looking to hold a piece of history like I did. Either way, it is my firm belief that someone thought that Paul Frank Jernigan was related to Aaron Jernigan and brought the little stamp to Orlando only to realize there was no connection. Maybe they sold it to an antique collector. Maybe they got rid of it in an estate sale themselves. Either way, I believe that it came from South Bend, Indiana down to Orlando because someone made the same mistake that I did, thinking that Paul Frank Jernigan was a Jernigan of Orlando. Well, now the connection between Paul Frank Jernigan and Aaron Jernigan is this podcast, a simple mistake about two men with no historical ties besides an English surname with different spellings. They are now bound together by my little podcast made 30 years after Paul Frank Jernigan died. I'll never part with this stamp. It's a part of my collection now, despite its lack of true connection. It'll always remind me of the early years of my town, of the fur town of South Bend, Indiana, and how a simple mistake can lead us down paths of history to forgotten architects from far, far away. Before we go, I asked Rachel about Orlando, the name. You see, we don't really know why Orlando is called Orlando. We changed it from Jernigan to Orlando in 1857, but why did we choose Orlando? There's a ton of theories. One is that Orlando was named for a character in William Shakespeare's As You Like It. One main road in town is named Rosalind, who Orlando is in love with in the play As You Like It, so that supports the theory. The story goes that Judge James Gamble Spear named the town after that character in the play because he was a fan of Shakespeare. The other theory is that Orlando is named for a Seminole War soldier named Orlando Reeves, who was killed near the banks of Lake Yola in the heart of downtown. There's a stone there that tells that story. There's also another story that Rachel tells me, so I ask her, which one does she believe is the truth? Theories and speculation as to why it has changed to Orlando. I don't know what you subscribe to. I, excuse me. <clears throat> I'm so emotional about it. But I, as a uh, theater degree haver, um, I personally like the Rosalind and Orlando story, even mm -hmm. if I don't know if it's true. Mm -hmm. what, 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 can you talk a little bit about the different legends and then what you, if you have a, if you have a thing that you professionally believe in? I don't know if I have a thing I professionally <laughs> believe in so like one of the things is um judge spear really liked shakespeare which a lot of people did at the time and they all liked the play as you like it right and they named it after orlando right the the character the main love interest in the in the thing um and that's also how rosalind club gets its name um the another one is the 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 Judge Spear had a worker for him, like a laborer that worked for him that he really like respected and appreciated, named Orlando and named it after him. I, Does I don't that know. feel like something they would do? No. <laughs> I'm like, that feels so unlikely for him to be like, this person who works for me is such a stand-up guy. Yeah. I'm going to name this town after him. Yeah. No, I don't. I don't is think the Orlando so. Reeves story even real? Is that that's, even a thing that that's, actually happened? That I think is what is most ex um, accepted. Okay. But it's been kind of disproven a lot. Yeah. I don't know. You there's, don't, have, there's a, not you don't the, have a theory you buy into. There, I yeah no I don't. That's because great. there's not any records to back up that there was an Orlando Reeves in right. the area. Um, 
no one living has ever seen records of a burial or you know anything at Lake Eola, like, like people there's, say. There's that stone, right? There's that stone that says it. If you go to Lake Eola, right? But that was put there, I think, in 1949. Right. That's what I'm saying. Is what I love about that is that sign. That rock feels mm-hmm. very official. Feels it very does, like which he, is which is why I say it's probably the officially accepted right. narrative. Yes, but I there is no records to back that's that up. Unbelievable. That's yeah, so bizarre to me. One day, I believe we may be able to settle on the truth. I personally believe the Shakespeare story, as I mentioned in that audio. I don't know why. Maybe it's because it's the most interesting story to me as a Shakespeare fan and recovering theater kid myself. But either way, I like that story. The truth is not available to us right now, however. We do know this. Whether Orlando was named for a fallen soldier, a laborer for the judge, or a Shakespeare character, we all can agree that Orlando is a far better name than Jernigan. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. I am so glad that you are here. I've loved getting to tell these antique stories so far. We've got two more on the docket and then the holiday episode at the end, right before the holiday break. I am so excited for you to hear that episode. I'm so excited for you to hear all of these next three episodes, but thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It means a lot to me and helps the show grow. You can also find the show on Instagram and Facebook at WFMPod, and you can send me an email at WFMPod at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you. I'd like to give a huge thank you, as always, to my friend Rachel Williams. Her work is always valuable. She helped me find so much about Aaron Jernigan, and I always love getting to bug her for an hour or so every once in a while when I find a good Orlando story. Please go visit the Orange County Regional History Center whenever you are in Orlando. It is one of the best places to go in town. I always have a good time when I go. Their exhibits are always changing. They've always got new things going on, and it's in a beautiful spot right in the heart of downtown. And go pay our friends at the Orlando Public Library a visit as well while you're there. Thank you to Rachel and thank you to the History Center. I'll include a link to their website. You can see what they're up to, their monthly events. They've got things going on all the time and you can plan your visit. All the music used in this episode was originally composed. All right, we are back at it next week with another dive into Florida's unique antique history. Until then, be good to yourself, be good to others, drink more water, and go gator and muddy the water. I will see you next Monday. It will be the first Monday in December. Have a very happy last week of November. See you next week.